Hello, my name is Isa Mester and I'm a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. I'm here today with Professor Yunji Kim, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Columbia University. Professor Kim is visiting Dickinson to give a lecture tonight, Monday, February 12, 2024, entitled Unseen Politics, Hidden Impact of Entertainment Media in Unequal America. In tonight's program, Professor Kim will discuss her current book project as the speaker for the annual Bruce R. Andrews Lecture. Welcome, Professor Kim. Well, thanks for the invitation. Um, so I was going to start off with the question, just in general, about your research. Mm -hmm. Your research focuses on how entertainment media skews our political opinions, right? And I wanted to start by simply asking, how did you find this particular field of study and what interested you about it so much? I see. So I don't think that I studied political science thinking that, oh, I'm going to be a scholar of entertainment media because that's a little bit of a, you know, outlier topic in many mainstream political science studies that we read. But I think one reason that I got very interested in was the trend that I saw in American media consumption that 30 or 40 years ago at 8 p.m. Americans had very few media choices to choose from. So you're agonizing between, ooh, tonight are we going to watch ABC Evening News or NBC Evening News or CBS Evening News? But now, past forward to 2024, at 8 p.m. at any given time, we have so many choices, right? And the obvious end outcome of that so many choices is that you don't have to watch news. You can always opt out and watch so many more interesting things that entertain your hearts and minds. So again, 30 years ago, even when you're not interested in politics because you had no choices, you were almost forced to watch news versus right now, what's competing for Joe Biden's press briefing is not Trump. It's cute dogs and Instagram, TikTok dance challenges, uh, travel videos on YouTube. There's so many things to watch that's way more entertaining and more fun than politics. And frankly, politics is depressing most of the time and stressful. So why would you watch news? So the macro result of all this changing media environment with so many choices is that many people are just opting out of news. And I thought, well, if people's media consumption is changing, Shouldn't the research change too? Why are we still thinking that people are exposed to what we think to be important when they have a thousand other options to be entertaining their eyes? So I think that's what I got interested in the reality of American media consumption and just the reality of, well, if not that many people are watching news and Americans spend astounding amount of time watching entertainment media, then what are they watching and what are the consequences of that for American politics? So I think that's how I got into this. Your work references the idea of the American dream mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. So I was going to ask, what did the American dream mean to you before and maybe after the research? Did your perception change over the time of your research? Oh, I see. So in academia, there's a saying that most researchers study the topic that resonates the most with them. So, you know, people who are interested in losing weight study obesity. <laughs> people who are trying to quit smoking study smoking behavior. People who are studied in elites study Congress. So I think as an immigrant to the U.S., I think American dream was a very natural topic for me. But 
again, I think that goes back to the kind of general theme of my research of media consumption and how I link that to the idea of my American dream. So one thing that was really interesting to me was in the past 20 years, with the rise of empirical evidence and declining mobility, every single elite economist, every famous person that you know from both partisan aisles uh, were talking the same thing, which is that American dream is dying and America is no longer the land of opportunity that it used to be. And all the data shows the same thing. So this is the news headline that you see whether you watch Fox News or MSNBC. And you think that if every politician and elite talks about this messaging, then usually according to uh, classic theories of public opinion, public opinion should change to reflect that such pessimistic uh, sentiments. But if you look at the public opinion poll, that is not what's going on. Like most Americans are pretty happy with the state of American dream or mobility or opportunities given to them. So that was really puzzling to me of if every news media talks about the fading American dream, but the public opinion is the direct opposite, like what's shaping people's belief in the American dream? And to this puzzle, many academics always said, oh, it's just part of America. Like, you know, American dream is part of, a, part of this nation. And because all the history of, you know, immigrants and all that, we just believe in the American dream. And that's why it's called American dream, not German dream <laughs> or Chinese dream. But then that explanation, that cultural explanation, doesn't really do a good job of explaining individual variations. So it explains why Americans overall are more optimistic than Germans or Chinese, but it doesn't explain why you have more optimistic belief than I am if we are both Americans. So I thought something, something's missing. And then later, I just happened to be reading data on the most popular TV show in America for each decade. And from 1970s, 80s, 90s, the top 10 TV show in the nation almost always included CBS 60 Minutes on one hour news magazine show. But in 2000, the TV show that defined that entire decade was The American Idol. So we transformed from a nation that watched 60 Minutes the most to watching American Idol the most. <laughs> so that was fascinating. And it was not just American Idol. It was Shark Tank, Apprentice, Master Chef, America's Got Talent, name your favorite reality TV show. And episodes, episodes, TV show after TV show have the same messaging that whatever your random talent is, whether it's cupcake making or cooking or fashion, whatever, in this country, anyone who works hard can get ahead. So that messaging was directly a counter to what elites have been saying on news media. And I had hypothesized that maybe that counter narrative in entertainment media is doing something in distorting people's economic perception. Do you think that the American dream as an attraction mm. to immigrants to the United States would be decreased if the numbers of current income inequality and economic immobility were more well known and mm. this idea of the American dream wasn't as dominant mm. and if entertainment media wouldn't reinforce this artificial and simplistic version of the American dream? Oh, that's a really fascinating question, a counterfactual that I haven't thought about. I say that only because I don't know how much news about America the immigrants consume. But one thing that was really kind of interesting, particularly during the pandemic and after 
George Floyd after Capitol riot, all the signs of democratic backsliding and decline. I think to the global spectators, it's been a shocking scene to watch that America tends to be the beacon of hope of democracy, but now all the ills of you know, democracy in this country live streams to the global audience. Global audience watched Capitol riot, you know, it was shocking to the global audience as much as it was to the domestic audience. So I wonder whether that types of a negative media coverage in American politics may change some immigrants' decision to move to the U.S. because now the coverage is about never-ending stream of gun shooting, right, across classrooms. Immigrants be getting shot in the classrooms or being a victim of a hate crime in the streets of New York. So I think that certainly would have an impact on some people's decision to immigrate to the U.S. And then one thing that I was also wondering was these TV formats, mm. like The Voice, mm. America's Got Talent, mm. American Idol, mm. those are shows that have been adopted by so many other countries. That's right. Do you have any thoughts on mm. that? Does that help the idea of the American dream potentially? Yeah, no, that's a really, really important question. And one thing that I think about how the culture or the nations play a role here is I think there has to be a certain amount of belief in optimism and the mobility for these shows to be successful. So for instance, if you look at the uh, cross-national public opinion data, it is the case that belief in mobility is lower in Great Britain or France or in other European countries. So I think these shows are mostly reinforcing the level of belief that people have. And one fascinating aspect of evidence from my own research is that most people in here in this country are optimistic, but there are also a subset of people who are very pessimistic about the American dream. When I force them to watch all these American Idol and all those rags to riches reality TV show, their belief in economic mobility backfired. It decreased further because they were already pessimistic and then they watched these shows and they thought, I know this is like lie or fake and not reflective of American reality. So their belief in mobility decreased afterwards. So I think that tells us again, highlights the important role of existing level of belief in economic mobility for these shows to be successful and resonating with the broader audience. So even if we have the same America's Got Talent versus Britain's Got Talent, it wouldn't have the same effect because a baseline level of belief is different. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because I've mm. grown up watching The Voice of Germany. Yes, yes. So yes. I've <laughs> seen that. And it's yes. like, that was one of the things. We had those shows too. Yes. And I think <laughs> it's a little different. Yes, yes. What do you think is the relationship between the entertainment media industry mm. and the political system of capitalism? And mm. like the Rex to riches trope. I see. So the link has been. Uh, highlighted by many kind of classical thinkers, and I think one is like Karl Marx, for instance, that a lot of this like critical thinking literature scholars argue that the scheme of the ruling class uh, to justify the capitalism, that winners of the system are completely justified because they work hard and got everything they own on pure merit. But empirical data to show that link is really, really hard, because how do we know the intention of the ruling class? or the entertainment media industry. I think the primary motivation for any industry is profit. And it happens to be that the stories that makes more profit 
happened to be uplifting stories of American dream. And I think it's related to the inherent human motivations in nature because would anyone be interested in watching a show about people failing? Because that wouldn't be fun. Or I guess some people could make it fun, but most of the time these uplifting stories are like way more, I don't know, uplifting and fun and entertaining to watch. So I think there's one part. And the other part is the financial incentives of the entertainment media industry. So compared to let's say 20 to 30 years ago with the rise of costs related to hiring actors and actresses, it became way more expensive to produce a TV show. So if you're the executive director for any TV show in LA, if the costs are getting higher, what type of shows would you produce? Right? The answer, oh, ordinary Americans who are so eager to be on TV without any compensation. So reality TV is so cheaper to make compared to other scripted shows. And again, with thousands of media choices, that each TV show attracts smaller share of audience, meaning that also smaller amount of money. So with the financial restraints, the only obvious option was, well, you know, make reality TV show because it's cheap. So I think that was also part of the changing industry in Hollywood. Even though the racks to riches reality TV formats are kind of squeeing our mm. perceptions, do you think there's still a value in them and mm. in the way the consumption that they're showing on TV? I see. So I think, if I'm interpreting this correctly, I think you're asking a normative question. Is, is my book and my argument is that Americans watch so much in a rags to riches TV show and this is bad. Like, I don't think that that's what I'm arguing because what is the optimal level of belief in meritocracy in any society, right? If it's too high, that it causes problems because everyone will think, well, you're poor, that's on you because you didn't work hard. Versus if the belief in meritocracy is so low that anyone wouldn't work hard because, well, if merit is not you know, rewarded, then why would you work? So I think it's a really tricky, normative question that individually, I think belief in economic mobility is a powerful agent for us to get things done. Because it's only when you think that you can do it that you actually do it. For instance, I watch a lot of reality TV shows, as you can only imagine, because <laughs> I had to write a book about it. After watching any episodes of America's Got Talent or Voice or whatever, I realized that I always practice piano more. Not that I were, you know, audition for that for any time soon, but it's like, oh, like, you know, maybe one day I can <laughs> perform in front of a bigger crowd. So it motivates me to practice more, for instance. So I think individually it's empowering. It potentially motivates us to apply for more scholarship, invent new things, or apply for a new patent, or, you know, all the engines of innovation. So individually it's empowering. But collectively, I think it has a conservative influence in our politics because belief in the American dream has implications for how people think about inequality, redistribution, welfare, and all those of social policies that we think about. So I think it's a very tricky question because it has a mixed implications, yeah. You already said that there's people who do have a negative opinion already. They mm. are more likely to then backfire, backfire yes, yeah. right? Mm. And there is people there who then recognize these shows as unrealistic. Mm. But 
why do these shows still have the success that they do mm. so many viewers if there is a good amount of people who kind of see that as backfiring oh yeah let me correct what i said so when i said that there are people who had a backfire effect these are a very small subset if you look at the national representative sample then it's only like less than 10 percent of the american electorate so i think that explains why 90 percent of people have a pretty optimistic view and therefore those messages kind of resonate with them. But again, I'm, I'm very aware that now in year 2024, I think the popularity of reality TV shows are a little bit declining compared to let's say the heydays of American Idol, which is like 2000. So it remains to be seen then what other types of narratives are Americans are exposed to in year 2024 across so many TV shows and episodes. One really methodologically convenient thing for studying this reality TV show was it didn't matter what reality TV show you watched, most of them had the same narrative. So it was very useful methodologically to study. But now, for instance, if you're telling me that you're a fan of the West Wing and the House of Cards, that it would be really hard for me to hypothesize the effect of these two shows on your belief in Washington DC or politics. Because West Wing is all about like uplifting politics and everything's unicorn and rainbow. Versus House of Cards is all about, well, you can get killed anytime. <laughs> it's politics filled with scandals or corruptions. So the net impact of watching these two shows is a little bit unclear. But when it comes to reality TV shows, there's an overarching same narrative across TV shows and episodes. So that's way easier to study compared to other shows where hypothesis is a little bit harder to create. So mm. if we say that mm. we're now more mm. watching Netflix mm. and those types of shows, it's evolving even more now, right? That's right. Mm. So what is there something that you think of working on? Because you said you're hypothesizing yes. it's harder now. Yes. If there's any influence? Mm. Yeah, no, I have two hypotheses <laughs> that I'm currently working on. The first is that Still, even when younger Americans are consuming more streaming services, one genre of TV show that's super popular is cop shows. Uh, NCIS, Chicago PD, Blue Bloods. These are literally like top 10 shows in the year of George Floyd, for instance. So that's super fascinating to me because every episode is the same storyline that criminals get caught within 40 minutes. <laughs> Police are extremely effective. They always serve the justice and they're all the good guys. So I think this, uh, again, same with the reality TV show, they have the overarching same narrative that I'm very interested in quantifying about how these types of popular cop shows are distorting the way Americans think about the criminal justice system. So I think that's one area of study that I'm currently conducting right now. The other area of work that I'm very interested in pursuing is attitudes towards LGBTQ. I think this is an evolving thing in Hollywood that we tend to think that, oh, if entertainment media gets more diverse, if Hollywood features more, I don't know, Asian actresses or black actresses and you know, more diverse storyline, that America will be more inclusive. That's our hypothesis. It's really, really hard to prove this empirically. I think there's a lot of backlash effects possible. We already saw what happened when Disney, you know, tried to make a Little Mermaid black, and there was a huge backlash against Black Little Mermaid. So, whether more diverse casting leads to a more diverse and more inclusive America, I think there's an open question that we actually do not have a good answer for. 
So studying racial diversity in entertainment media and how that affects racial attitudes is really, really tricky. But I think methodologically, it'd be easier to study whether attitudes towards LGBTQ are changing because of entertainment media, because across many, many TV shows now, they're now normalizing more and more gay actors and gay actresses. So if you just see more of them, and they're part of the plot, and whatever show you watch, it almost now guarantees to have at least one LGBTQ character. So I'm curious to see whether that affects how Americans think about LGBTQ community in general, and not just American public opinion, but global public opinion too, because Netflix is now so global that in Germany, they can watch Korean, uh, Korean movies. In Korea, can watch American movie, right? So what happens when, for instance, Japanese citizens tune into American show, but Japanese society is super conservative, very anti-gay, but they're exposed to very American narrative about normalizing LGBTQ community. So how does that work? So for this one, I think I'm interested in not only American public opinion, but how American media narrative can also change the global public opinion. How can listeners, especially students, mm. be more conscious mm. about media influence mm. and their media consumption? Oh, that's a really hard question because I don't think that I know how much media that I watch influences me. <laughs> because, you know, we all want to read a book before going to bed. But then the reality is we are just stick to our phone and scrolling on Instagram and TikTok. <laughs> then that's the reality. So one exercise that I actually forced my students enrolled in my media class to do in day one as a first assignment is I make them log every media they consume for a week and make a chart to see how much liberal media are you watching, how much conservative media are you watching, how much of your media consumption devoted to news. So I've heard from my students that that was a really eye-opening experience because they never really think about what they watch or how much they watch. So I think that's a one good way to kind of re-evaluate your media consumption. An other fun activity that I always encourage students to do is if you have a TikTok account or Instagram or YouTube, there is a function that you can download your entire watch history because so, they know what you watched. So I occasionally download my watch history to analyze for fun. <laughs> and oftentimes researchers are very interested in this type of data that individuals can donate to us because Instagram will never let researchers have the data set that they have. But we are super curious what people do with Instagram. So what we can do is we, are, we can ask for data donation. Like, would you mind downloading your own Instagram activity history and donate to us? Okay. So that we can actually look at how that affects you or, or how that correlates with your belief and behavior. Does that make it harder mm -hmm. if you have to ask for those data donations versus being able to ask Instagram and mm. they, them being like, yeah, of course. So you are now touching a very sensitive area in a very important way. And the, I think the problem here is that many of the questions that we are interested in political scientists are controversial ones. We want to know whether Facebook is really spreading misinformation or conspiracy theories. We want to know whether Instagram is really increasing teenage suicide rates. So in order to answer these important, important questions, we need data, we need empirical evidence. But from a company's perspective, if the data confirms our hypothesis, it's a disaster for their PR. So why would you ever let us have the data when the research findings can go 
either way. And also for the privacy reasons too, that it's extremely rare for companies to share that data. I mean, there was a one instance where a group of researchers worked with a team of researchers from Facebook. So there are rare collaboration opportunities too, but they would never allow us to have a full universe of data that they have access to. So then the only way that we can use the data or get the data is either using a third party app or asking individuals to donate their data or ask them to install like browser extension thing that automatically scrapes every website they see or interactions they see and then we can get the data too. So the one of types of data they work with is an individual level web tracking data, which is the, the it records every single website you visited for how long and how much scary data in many ways. But it's incredibly useful for studying media consumption behavior at a very granular level by milliseconds level of you were at NewYorkTimes.com, you read this article for four minutes and 56 seconds. So we actually know now. So that's an incredibly useful data, but I think we have lots to go when it comes to figuring out how are we gonna coexist with this company that is less willing to share data, but we want the data, so what's the solution? I always joke to my undergrad students that in 10 years, when you become an executive Google, do not forget me, and please give the, your data to me, okay? <laughs> so that's the one possibility, long-term gain. But a lot of researchers are, for instance, are interested in using TikTok data because that's not what, what teenagers do. But I mean, TikTok company is based in China and the user agreements with using the TikTok API is extremely key. So then now we're just figuring out how do we get TikTok data when the company is a little bit tricky to work with. What are some changes, if any, that you would like to see in entertainment media for political purposes and mm. for more social awareness in the United mm. States? That's an excellent question. So once upon a time, meaning like a year ago, <laughs> a one TV producer approached me with the really interesting idea that he wanted to create a new reality TV show featuring journalists. So his idea was, I want to create this TV show that's like an American Idol, except that it's for journalists. So they're not competing on their singing abilities, but they're competing on their stories. And every week they eliminate journalists. And the final winner, I don't know, gets to publish in the New York Times or something like that. And his idea was by making this process entertaining and showing how news is being made, Maybe this TV show, if it goes viral, you know, who knows, <laughs> that it may restore a civic trust in journalism, which is super low right now. So we didn't end up working on this together, but that idea was really, really intriguing because given that so many people are not watching news, I think the power of entertainment media in persuading and shaping public opinion is huge and immense. But I don't think that we kind of cracked the code yet about how we can really use that for you know, all the causes that we care about. Because boring news article about statistics climate change, that's not gonna fly. Like most people are not that interested. Any university Instagram account, I can guarantee you that there's always a message from the university president that gets like 200 likes versus university dog <laughs> gets 10 times more likes <laughs> and engagement. And that's a reality for every marketing and every PR company that things that we want people to know are usually boring, <laughs> right? So then 
I think we have to kind of grapple with the reality that most books go unread. <laughs> most news go unread. So rather than complaining that, oh, you know, people are not paying attention, I think we have to take a more active role of, well, given that reality, then what can we do? Political strategists are therefore now working with a lot of social media influencers to deliver the voter turnout messages to young people, for instance, because they know that if Joe Biden talks to young voters at 9 p.m. through whatever, meet the press, there's zero chance or close to zero chance that young people will watch that TV show. So now we have to presidential booth in the Animal Crossing is a popular game show or game that people play. So I think there are creative ways that we can do to engage otherwise inattentive voters and viewers in a new way. And I don't have a great answer for how to do, but I think that's a direction that we have to go. The last question mm-hmm. basically was just going to be, do you enjoy watching this type of media, mm. The Voice, American Idol, mm. Shark Tank? Do you have a favorite show? Ah, yes. One, the first answer is, I don't think that I enjoy watching them anymore because that makes me think about my work and research. <laughs> so it's now no longer entertainment for me. But my favorite reality TV show is The Christmas Light Fight. It's an ABC reality TV show where families decorate their house with intense Christmas lights and compete. (laughs) And then the winner gets a 50K award with the honor of the most decorated Christmas tree house. And that was really fun to watch. (laughs) Yes. Is there anything else you want to add? Nothing to do with research, but no, so something about being in this very small college town reminds me of my younger days, and I'm very envious of all of you who have so many years ahead of you to do very exciting things, whether it's politics or whatever that you're interested in. So I say college is for fun, so you have to get the most out of it. That concludes our interview today. If you're interested in learning more or hearing Professor Kim's talk, then you can visit our website at clarkforum.org. Once again, on behalf of the Clark Forum, thank you so much for sharing your time and your perspective today. Thank you for all the questions. Thank you.